0: This panel was part of the SGPS Scholarship Beyond Boundaries Conference, hosted at Queen's University from the 29th of February to the 1st of March, 2020. All right, it is my great pleasure to be the um, host for this session right now uh, on international dimensions of engagement. Uh, Ross is going to be our first speaker, I'm guessing, yes? Yes. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself, and I'll let all of you kind of just flow in after one another so that I don't disrupt the flow of things. So you guys can come in after each other, and then I'll help facilitate Q&A if need be. But if not, I'll just let you do your thing. Sound good? Yes? Okay, Russ, take it away.
1: All right, good afternoon. Without further ado, so I'm going to be talking about partnerships to develop chemistry research capacity in low-income African countries. And I'm thankful that Sirius is a physics PhD, so he might understand some of that. So I uh, was born and grew up in Zimbabwe. Um, I moved to Australia in 2008. This is just some of the motivation for this talk. I have a PhD in chemistry, which I obtained in 2012 at the University of Queensland. Um, following that, I did a I did I've done I'm on my fourth, fourth postdoc at the moment. But in 2013, I was fortunate enough uh, to spend a year exploring ways in which chemistry research is based in more advanced countries, you could say, or countries with more advanced economies, Western countries could assist their counterparts in low-income countries, middle- to low-income country- countries. And I can't quite see it on there, but there should be a, so we managed to actually publish a paper in the Journal of Chemical Education 2013 about that. And it was quite a transformative year for me. And ever since then, I've kind of um, kept up with some of the initiatives that i found, which I'm just going to be sharing a bit about today. So just some more motivation for this presentation. I mean, you can see here that the GDP, and because I'm from Africa, my main focus is on Africa. Um, and you can see from this figure that the GDP of most African countries is lower than like, most of the states in the US. Um, so even having just one state of the U.S. has a higher GDP than most African countries. Um, and there's many causes for poverty throughout Africa. Um, I'm not going to go into that because that's not really the focus of the talk. But I guess what I wanted to focus are the two bottom ones on that slide. The first is an inability to face global cha- challenges, things like climate change, microplastics, pollution, uh, something that's a global challenge, a global something that, that could be started in North America might affect people in Africa, but also the inability to face local challenges such as lack of access to clean water. And what I'm proposing is that the chemical sciences will play, I mean, sorry, this is proposed by the Royal Society of Chemistry and in, in, based in the UK, but what I'd like to support, I'd like to support that comment that the chemical sciences will play an important role in tackling these global challenges. Okay, so along with policy, along with politics, I think the chemistry is a really important thing. Um, And this is the, interesting, this is the American Chemical Society mission statement. Founded in 1876, we are the largest scientific society. Our mission is to advance the broader chemistry enterprise and its practitioners for the benefit of Earth and its people. And then the last sentence is quite striking. Our vision is to improve people's lives through the transforming power of chemistry. Okay. I mean, just as a rhetorical question, which people do you think they're talking? I think the American Chemical Society has a few international branches, but it's mainly focused on improving North American people's lives. Um, However, if if tapped into, chemistry can offer hope for many Africans. All right, there's just one example of a company that was started up. 43% of Kenyans don't have access to clean water, something that we take for granted. And about you know, more than 3,000 children die yearly from diarrhea caused by unsafe water in Kenya. Development of affordable and effective water filter systems can save lives, and that's a chem- that's a chemistry-based thing. All right, and this is from a paper in 2016 published by a good friend of mine, an Ethiopian, and he, he talks about a lot of chemical compounds that have been um, found in... Uh, plants that are found in Africa. So the one on the left is, a, is one that's, that's a very famous anti-malarial and anti-cancer agent. I don't expect any of you to have heard of this, but it was um, discovered in an African plant in Nigeria by Nigerians back in the 1970s. And then the one on the right, uh, Professor Abigaz and his group discovered this geshoedin, which is also a very, very practical chemical Um, And that was in the 1990s, but you can see that there's lots of potential. Um, However, and this is unfortunate, that the papers published worldwide, if you just look on this sort of infographic, you can see that Africa doesn't publish very many papers at all. So this is just supposed to show, in a diagrammatic way, um, the number of papers is proportional to the size of the continent. South Africa is home at the at the moment to about 17% of the world's population, but accounts for only 1.3% of global investment in R&D, and only contributes about 2% of global knowledge. So South Africa and Egypt are the major players, um, and yeah, the view, very few African universities are among the top 500 worldwide. And then just the final. So there's there's an average loss of about 20,000 professionals per year from the African continent since 1990. So that's pretty significant. Um, And on that pie chart on the right, you can see that there's only 164 scientists per 1 million inhabitants in the whole of Africa. That's from 2018, compared, for example, to the USA, which has almost 5,000 people. So some of the main reasons are: it's difficult, it's possible, to remain competitive if you stay in Africa. Uh, or to support your family on the salary that you obtain. So, but is this the full story? Like this is pretty negative what I've talked about. Doesn't such a low output arise from a similarly low input? Okay, so what am I I saying? Um, Yeah, if we look at, okay, I I won't go into that right now. Let's just have a look. So what does Africa have, uh, have in its favor though? Obviously, it has many resources. I've already talked about unexplored and undiscovered chemicals. In fact, there's many cases where chemicals have been extracted from plants but, and published in African journals, but no one in the West reads them. So no one knows about it. Um, obviously, mining is a big thing in Africa as well. And the second thing that Africa has in its favor is its youth. So the current population of Africa is 1.3 billion And the median age is about 19.4 years. That's extremely young. Okay, So half the people are younger than this age and half are older. That's what median means. So there's a lot of young people in Africa. So what are the challenges? So how to use these human and natural resources to achieve equitable and sustainable development for the whole continent? How do we do that? Um, Especially considering climate change, so temperatures across the continent are expected to rise between about three and four degrees over the next century. These are also global issues. That's why we need to be concerned, not just the people on the continent. And this just came out of a paper that was published last year in Nature by this Ethiopian group um, in Nature, which is a very high profile uh, journal. So she says, and I'm gonna quote, to face these formidable challenges, Africa must improve its capabilities in higher education and research. Yet the quality of the scientific education provided at many universities has, of anything, deteriorated over the past two decades. In our view, the improvement so badly needed must happen mainly in Africa's higher education system. But support from the international scientific community is essential. Global research and global stability stand to benefit. So this is an African person who's saying this is not my words. Okay. Um, so what can we do? And that's kind of was. What I want to focus this talk on a bit is what can we do? I mean, I'm as a Zimbabwean. I feel convicted that I live here in Canada. I've got you know, access to great research equipment. I can move forward, but I've, I know lots of people throughout Africa who struggle in their careers, um, lack of equipment, and many things. So I think that the African diaspora, as people who are based here, is very crucial. Um, over 10% of sub-Saharan Africans with graduate degrees emigrate and i think the reason why the african diaspora is really crucial is because african academics here and based in the diaspora understand both contexts so we understand the western standards of publishing in a high impact journal we also understand the african what it's like in africa and uh, we are aware of the knowledge gaps the local circumstances societal needs and the socio-economic factors and the political factors as well in african countries okay so we're not naive in going in. Uh, we can also connect and communicate effectively with African scientists based in low income countries. And in some ways, we're motivated. Like, I have family who still live in Zimbabwe. So I still have a motivation to help or to, to be a part of that, to partner with people. However, there are many ways in which anyone can serve. Sorry? Okay. So I think I'll just move to this slide. So how can we help? I've identified five visible challenges. I'm not going to go through each of them. I'm only going to go through three that I think are realistic. Um, the first is a lack of, research, lack of research infrastructure. And some of the opportunities are to share equipment. And I'll talk about that shortly. A second one is isolation of chemistry researchers over the continent, working in silos, so not being able to network. And there's a lot of online initiatives that have been started up. And the last one, number five, so uh, African research not being recognized widely and internationally. And I'll talk briefly about a new international scientific journal that's just been started up. So firstly, overcoming lack of infrastructure. There's an organization called Seeding Labs, which I wouldn't have heard about if I hadn't done the research that I did. Uh, They're based in the US, but they're really good at um, connecting uh, equipment with Universities or institutions based throughout Africa. There's a rigorous screening of applicants, so they don't just throw junk equipment at the African universities. It has to pass through a good screening, and also the ap- the, the people in Africa have to have to contribute towards that as well. So it's not for free; they have to pay. But you can see how much um, equipment they've shipped: 233 tons of equipment, and provided more than 33 million worth of donated lab equipment. So um, yeah, it's the African diaspora who essentially make the connections between the universities in need and the universities in the Western country who's got the equipment. I won't talk about that, um, although I'll maybe just mention it briefly. That equipment that you can see on the left with that guy standing there, those are worth about $10 million. There's a smaller version that costs about 200000 Queens alone has eight of these things. The whole of Africa has about 20. That gives you some perspective. One university in Canada has eight the whole of africa has about 20 so there's a huge disparity anyway so the thing on the bottom right there desktop instruments are now coming into play and i'm advocating for if people are going to start up labs they can these are affordable they cost 60,000 and then about 5,000 to maintain them so that's much more affordable so jumping to number 3 like i said i'll just focus on those three networks and i found one really really effective network is called authoraid i'm a part of this so i'm involved um, so researchers in developing countries, and sorry, I shouldn't have used that word. I just, uh, it's from this paper here, I conduct much valuable research, but difficulties in writing and publication often prevent this research from being widely known. So AuthorAid, um, which is established in 2011, help address this problem. So some of the things that they include are free online training courses, often by African people in the diaspora. So I'm one of the people, I facilitate one of those courses. They have a resource library, a blog, an email, listserv, mentorship opportunities, so that you can pair up with people based in low-income countries and you can guide them through publishing their work or writing grants. And then I'm also part of a WhatsApp journal club. So if you look on my phone right now, you'll see that I'm part of a group of about 50 people throughout Africa who are all contributing to a conversation, putting papers, offering opportunities, and giving encouragement to each other. So that's what the website looks like for AuthorAid, and I know the CEO of this organization. Um, there's another network called the Next Einstein Forum, um, which was launched in 2008 by a South African called Neil Turek. I don't know if you've heard of him, Claudia. Um, have you? No. That's okay, it's all good. I wouldn't have heard of him if I hadn't had to do this talk. So, But the main objectives of this Next Einstein Forum are to try and find the next Einstein in Africa. That's his, that's his passion. So they, they basically get Africa's innovators and scientists to gather together in one place. This year it's in Kenya, and it's actually next week. So it's very poignant that we have this conference now. And they highlight breakthrough discoveries and um, catalyze scientific collaboration. I won't talk about that. There's a website. I mean, they have Instagram. They have a lot of social media going on, and it's raised a lot of awareness. The last thing is just international recognition of African research. So these two publications were only uh, launched two years ago, 2018, at the Next Science Forum. They're open access, and the magazine, so Scientific African magazine, the one on the right, is more for lay people who aren't scientists, just to understand the bigger picture of what's happening, whereas the journal itself is much more technical. So I'm an editor of this journal. Um, So part of what I do every day is I receive journal articles, and send them on to reviewers and then reject or accept them for publication. It's been very challenging for me. Two main challenges. I, I get people's papers, and I, I want to be rigorous. I want to make sure that there's a high level of rigor, but I also understand that their situation, they may have a lack of equipment to demonstrate evidence for certain, you know, to demonstrate evidence. So how do I, it's a balance. And also finding reviewers is very challenging because no one, no one really cares about this journal. No one knows it. They only want to to review the more contemporary journals, I guess you could say. So there's an example of the most highly cited paper in Scientific African. It's only been cited five times, but it was only published in 2019, so it's got a way to go. You can see an almost identical paper published in Scientific Reports, which is a nature journal, which has been cited 29 times since last year. So they're both published at around the same time and around sort of the same topic as well. So, but it's a step forward. So, in conclusion, I believe that a stronger chemistry knowledge base would be beneficial to the economies of low-income country or low-income African countries and the quality of life of the inhabitants of these countries. I identified five visible challenges to building chemistry research capacity, and we looked in more detail at three of these. Um, And just, just my final words: scholarship. Beyond boundaries, so my my kind of interpretation is sharing experiences, knowledge, and resources across international boundaries here to promote scholarship in the low-income contexts. So, thank you, and with this, I'll hand over to James.
0: Are you <coughs>
2: Okay, uh, so uh, Ross was talking about what has Africa in its favor, he talked about youth and resources. I'm going to talk about religion. So um, I've titled my presentation, Africa Beyond Aid, Discussions from Ghana. Um, What I want to do here is to explore what development aid has got to do with religion. So in addressing this question, I have divided my presentation into four parts. The first part will provide a brief history of foreign aid flows to Ghana. And then I'm going to ask questions about how effective or ineffective this foreign aid has been. Um, then I will discuss recent calls by Ghana's president for a Ghana beyond aid or an Africa beyond aid and what that means. So, um, overall, my main argument is that if Ghana, like many other African governments or countries, they seek to renounce a reliance on aid or foreign aid, then there are major lessons to be learned from the operations of African religious organizations, particularly Pentecostal and charismatic churches on the continent and beyond. So primarily Pentecostal and charismatic churches, they offer alternatives, or alternative ways in internal generation of funds and other self-supporting and self-financing initiatives in the areas of education and health. So uh, let's start. Before I begin, I want to make some clarifications about what aid is. Uh, Ross talked about author aid. I'm going to talk about aid in general. So what is aid? Um, Many people actually assume that aid is um, out of a humanitarian impulse, or perhaps it's out of altruistic motives. But um, a lot of research has suggested that um, that might not always be the case. So officially, there are two classifications of aid. There's one called the Official Development Assistance that is usually given to low-income countries. And there's the other called official assistance that is often given to countries that are other than low-income countries. So what we usually know as aid is actually official development assistance aid. And many Afghan countries are part of um, um, recipients of this kind of aid because they are, they are regarded by um, international organizations like World Bank, that they are low, middle income, or low income, or least developed countries, which of course is very problematic. I will not talk about that today. So the main thing about Ghana Beyond Aid is Official Development Assistance Aid, that's ODA. So that's just one clarification I have to make. And um, why do countries give aid? There are various reasons, like I said. It's not only about um, altruistic motives or humanitarian impulses, Um, humanitarian relief, but also for diplomatic reasons. For example, um, recently a lot of aid from USA and um, uh, other European countries to African countries are for diplomatic reasons in terms of military aid. So you realize that there are international political goals and there are also management between governments regarding the rationale behind the aid that is given. There's also developmental aid. This is the focus of my discussion. The primary focus for developmental aid is um, social and economic progress and poverty reduction. And then there's also commercial reasons for aid and cultural reasons for aid. Okay, my focus is on developmental aid. So I'll just give a brief history about foreign aid flows to Ghana since 1957 to date. I've chosen 1957 because 1957 1957 was the year in which Ghana attained its independence and 2017 because 2017 was the most recent um, data we have had regarding aid in the region. So since um, 1957 actually Ghana um, in the year 1957 Ghana actually attained independence from Britain and at that time the foreign reserves that Ghana had was close to about 500 million pounds, if you can see that. And we had also close to about a GDP per capita of 300 pounds. And that value of these these economic situations were comparable to other countries like South Korea, Malaysia, and Singapore. So under the leadership of the first president, Ghana, the first president of Ghana's coming coma, um, Ghana sought to transform its economy by pursuing industrialization rather than put, um, the production of raw materials. So Kwame Nkrumah established a lot of infrastructure um, including like roads, bridges, railways, and all of that. Now by the 1960s, Ghana had its first military coup. So at that time, commodity prices in the world was falling, and this led to the depletion of the foreign reserves that we had inherited from our British colonial masters. So by that time, you realize that Foreign aid started. Uh, foreign aid began to be part of the major budget of Ghana. And in the 1970s, we also witnessed a lot of military coup d'état. So there was a lot of political instability within that region. And then by the 1980s, that's when structural adjustment programs became a norm for many African countries. And at that time, aid was primarily given to bring many African countries from socialist. Um, economic regimes to more neoliberal state, you know, uh, regimes, so that there'll be less, there'll be more privatization um, in terms of, you know, transferring, uh, t- turning state-owned companies into private-owned companies, and there'll be less um, employers in the, in employers from, employers in the state um, companies as well. So, my main point in this brief history is that um, since 1957 till date, Ghana has actually received um, close to about $1 billion um, regarding its aid. And um, from that period till now, um, the country has still been regarded as a developing country. Okay? Um, though we have made some strides, uh, when I say it has been regarded as a developing country, I'm talking about the figures and the terms that um, so-called international monetary organizations give other countries. Okay, Of course, that's problematic. We can talk about that um, later in, in the discussion. But Ghana has made some strides, of course, but it's still regarded as a developing country, which is very problematic. We can talk about that later. So why is it that aid has been effective or has not been effective? There are lots of debates around this. I'm not sure we can finish this debate today. But the main reasons that have been given that development aid, when it's properly designed, it will work well and it will help save the lives of the poor, it will help promote economic growth. And these assumptions are made based on country-level analysis and the data that is available and who is analyzing it from which perspective and all of that. So there are some big names in that pro-aid debate, like Jeffrey Sachs and um, Bess and Theron and all of that. But those who are also against aid, um, some of the popular names are like Dambi Zamoyo. I'm sure you might have heard her book, Debt Aid. And uh, she has argued strongly that um, aid fuels corruption, and it also discourages local enterprise. It undermines domestic savings and investments, and it fuels the dictatorships, uh, government, and it also breeds dependency syndrome. And um, Dambi Zamoyo actually offers an alternative, for African countries to follow the pattern of China and perhaps, uh, you know, have more, in, um, uh, more market and trade with China and that um, the Chinese offer alternatives that the West couldn't. We talk, can talk about that again during the conversations later. And the second debate against aid is that those who are receiving the aid and the forms of intervention that aid seeks and the kind of objectives that it seeks are all linked to geopolitical Consideration. So whatever collaborations you're going to have with any Western country, um, the, the, the critiques or the critical scholars around it, they argue that it's not just that, okay, if you're choosing Ethiopia to receive aid or you're choosing um, South Africa to receive aid, it's not because South Africa is poor or maybe Ghana is poor, but there are certain geopolitical considerations that are at play or that are at work. So these are basically the main arguments that have been made around aid. And um, since 2017, Ghana's president, um, Nana Nanakoufadou, has been calling for Africa Beyond Aid or Ghana Beyond Aid. Now, the main aim or the main principle under this call for Africa Beyond Aid is that um, we should mobilize domestic resources for our own developmental projects. It's not that we are renouncing aid, but we are actually renouncing the mindset of dependency and then we are also trying to renounce that colonial pattern of managing an economy and also focusing on trade rather than aid. So that's basically what the Ghanaian president has said. Of course, there are a lot of debates around this in the international media and local media regarding whether this is a rhetoric or is actually the case. Um, we can't talk about this here because there are a lot of evidence that shows, that even though the president is calling for a Ghana beyond aid, The data shows already that you are collecting so much aid from so many countries. Yeah, but uh, I didn't bring that here because we might not have time to discuss this. But I want to focus on one of the main pillars of the Ghana Beyond Aid agenda. The aim is to mobilize domestic resources. And in order to mobilize domestic resources, the government intends to focus on taxation. And as we speak now, Ghana has a task population of about 6 million people. And only 1.5 million people actually registered as taxpayers out of the 6.5 million people, only 1.5. Okay. And um, the, institution, the institution that is responsible for revenue collection is also having a lot of difficulties in terms of the, the, the way it operates in collecting um, um, taxes. So my few, I, I mean, the research I did very recently concerning Ghanaian attitudes towards taxation it's that about, about 7 in every 10 Ghanaians know, for example, that they are supposed to pay specific kinds of taxes, like property tax, license tax, VAT tax, and all of that. But many of them are very hostile towards that payment because many of them realize that there are no promises on the returns to their taxes. There's no public service delivery that matches the kind of taxes they are paying. And also, a lot, about 70% of the Ghanaian population is involved in um, informal economy. So whilst you are involved in that informal economy, it's going to be very difficult to actually mobilize taxpayers to enhance your, your domestic, you know, resources. So the point about what religion has got to do with this is that when you realize how difficult many um, African governments you know, like the kind of difficulty many African governments face in collection of taxes, it stands in very sharp contrast to the way a lot of Pentecostal charismatic churches are able to actually tide or generate money from their members. Let me just make that point again. The point I'm saying here is that the challenges that a lot of African governments face, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, the challenges they face in trying to generate taxes from their own population, it stands in a very sharp contrast to the way Pentecostal charismatic churches are able to generate money from their own church members. And many of these churches actually survive based on the payment of tithes and collection of monies and regular offerings from their church members. So, for example, um, that picture is an event that happened on one of the... an event that happened on a popular venue in Ghana. It was the Independence Square, was an event by a Pentecostal charismatic church, and below is a kind of offerings that they gathered, okay? Um, they had various types of offerings, some of them ranging in um, $5,000, $1,000, um, $520, for various kinds of expectations they were seeking from God. Now, during that event, they made roughly um, about 2 million Ghanaian cities. That's roughly half a million dollars just during this event. Okay, the money that was generated due to spend was about half a million dollars. So my question is, how are we able to kind of mobilize domestic resources? If you're Okay, we can talk about youth, we can talk about uh, natural resources, but I also believe that religion has a very serious role to play when we want to talk about aid in Ghana, because Pentecostal churches have very great tenacity to generate monies from their populations in a very sharp, contrasting way compared to the governments of those same countries. So in conclusion, my main argument is that uh, if Africa or Ghana in particular intends to move beyond aid, then there's a need for serious collaboration with religious networks. And what I'm saying is not actually that, I'm not saying that conforming to religious organizations' operations or trying to conform to the way religious organizations collect money from their population is going to promote, you know, development. And I'm also trying to say that there shouldn't be a separation between church and state. Of course, that separation or that historical idea about separation of church and state is a very European um, 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 heritage. And the point is that there are actually resources that are already embedded in the cultural and social um, operations of many African countries and those cultural and social operations are within Pentecostal charismatic churches and um, these avenues been like they provide ways within which we can actually generate internal funds for developmental projects rather than rely on foreign aid so um, there should be you know a kind of way of talking about this this conversation regarding the church as in religious networks and Pentecostal organizations, and the mobilization of funds that's money, finances for developmental age. Thank you. Thank you. Part,
0: Oops, sorry. Okay. Can I see my notes? When
2: I-
3: Okay, so my topic is not about Africa. It's the only continent I haven't been to. (laughs) Um, So basically, my talk is more thinking about in respect of if, like, interventions in other countries, and then I'm kind of looking at it from... I have a philosophical... I did my my undergrad in philosophy and environmental studies, then I did my master's in international peace studies... Um, where I was looking at conflict between resource development and indigenous communities. And then that's led me, that was about seven years ago, so I've been working like at, in Canada and at home as a mediator and peace builder. So my idea here is to kind of give, like, if we're thinking of going beyond boundaries, um, to look how we can do that individually, like understanding ourselves and other people's perspectives. And then I was kind of applying that to an international context when there's conflict, and maybe like doing interventions or bringing aid or when you can't bring aid. So I'm gonna kind of just flow through those two things, those concepts, if that makes sense. Um, Yeah, so I'll just say like, what is conflict? How do we experience it? How can we understand it better? I'm trying to cram a lot into these 15 minutes, so we'll just see where we land and then we'll go from there. Um, Basically, yeah, so I've done a lot of, like, intercultural exchanges as a way to, like, build bridges and build understanding. Um, I've done a lot of exchanges between, like, Indigenous people in South America and North America. Um, This is just a photo. To me, peace building is kind of a way of decolonizing and, like, moving out of our typical Western perspective, especially through mediation and restorative justice. It's, like, moving into that kind of gray area that exists. So it's like, what can we learn from each other when we start thinking outside our own mindsets and what we're taught to know? Um, this is kind of just to give a picture of like how conflict is playing out always pretty much throughout society. Um, it can be used as a catalyst for change. Last year and this year, there's just been conflicts all over the world. Um, I've lived in Latin America. I speak like Spanish and Portuguese and Creole. And then I also lived in Ireland and Spain um, in Haiti, so like, I'm more focused in those areas for this talk, but like yeah, in Ecuador, in Chile, there was all those uprisings, Brazil, there's been tons of protests, Colombia, we've had the climate change protests, we have the Wet'suwet'en. Um, so we just know all of the world, social activism has risen, where there's inequality, there's typically conflict, and people asking for their voice to be heard. We can see across the globe that people are asking for a shift in the global power system. Um, Yeah, so these are going to be kind of tools to kind of work towards empowerment and recognition. Um, So social conflict theories are a theoretical framework that understands material inequalities to be driving social forces behind many social problems. The two main schools of thought are grouped behind Marxist and non-Marxist. So Marxist theories focuses on the social conflict as an end result from economic inequality. Um, And the other one, non-Marxist theory, sees social conflict as a result of competing interests among social groups. So when you think of conflict, like typically those can be the kind of two reasons behind them. Um, So you have to think, if you're doing any kind of conflict analysis, you think about how we experience conflict. So we can experience ourselves like individually. Um, For social conflict, you can experience it through hunger and displacement. Um, through physical and emotional violence, and then it can be gendered or through, like, a legacy, which is kind of passed on. So, conflict is the single greatest driver of humanitarian crisis today. It is the biggest threat to a more prosperous, stable, and sustainable future. It affects range from the dev- its devastating impacts on food security and displ- displacement, and it can have detrimental effects to the environment, community resilience, cohesion, as well as gendered social relations. Conflict theory accesses the differences in power, well-being, and access to resources, so we can examine different power structures and disparities that impacts peoples all, in all of their lives. So, we can look. It helps societies. It like perpetuates these forms of injustice and inequality. Um, so, conflict management and peace building seeks to like rebalance these power imbalances, basically. So how does conflict government or industries typically when there's conflicts, like if you can think about like resource development and mining more so in like Latin American context, there's high risk of death. When I was speaking in Colombia, over I think 135 indigenous people had died just in 2019 alone in fighting against resource development. Um, So death is one stalls to operations. If you think of the CN Railway operations right now, Loss of money through production, um, damaged operations, environmental degradation, damaged relationships, and big projects can lo- lose loss of public support. So it's kind of to the government and industry to prevent conflicts before they happen and to foster good relationships, though they typically don't do this sort of thing. <laughs> like relationship building is a really easy way to do, do things in collaboration and partnership, but um, typically that's not the mode of operation. Um, so these are kind of general causes for social conflict. So health inequalities, culture exi- cultural existence and livelihoods, um, environmental degradation, inter-ethnic conflicts and competition, death and injuries, um, perception on the implementation of peace process. So like in Colombia right now, the peace process is or violence is increasing because people don't really believe that the peace process is actually working um, and that they'll have a sustainable future. Um, The same thing if you think in the Irish context or like, maybe in the South African. And right now, too, if reconciliation isn't perceived as working, then there's a rise in conflict because there's no belief that the process is moving forward. Um, Lack of shared economic benefits. So if obviously inequality once again and then a weak government state usually has little control to control any kind of violence or conflict there um displacement is a huge one and then government recognition of rights so again just any kind of rights land rights individual rights those will call it, those are the typical ones for social conflict specifically um oopsie. So, why it's important and why people should be investing more in mediation and um, peace building is basically in alternative forms is like I was in Haiti so I lived in Haiti for 6 months and it's just a really it's the poorest country in the western hemisphere um, when I was there I was doing violent conflict reduction because Haitian Haitian the general Haitian population doesn't have any access to form of justice So they will rely on, like, taking justice into their own hands. They'll go to a voodoo priest. They'll go to the courts, spend money, but they won't actually get anything. So if someone steals your goat, you either go beat them up, you'll try to get voodoo on them, or you'll go to the court system that doesn't spend money you don't have, or you'll just, like, go kill them, basically. So we're trying to train them in mediation so they could have alternative forms of justice to solve their own problems. With that happening and trying to reduce violence, there was like the biggest violent uprising in the country um, because they don't have any access to resources. There's no form of government, and there's just like no economic development whatsoever. Um, anyway, so the embassies and everyone has pulled out of Haiti, and it's very hard to get anything done there. So when there is violence or there is conflict, it makes it deters aid from coming. Not that aid's necessarily good or bad, um, but. It's hard to conduct business or research when there's conflict, especially when it's violent. Um, Yeah, so it's kind of a catch-22. You can't do economic development if there's violence, but you can't do economic development if there is violence. Um, So conflict happens. So here's just like a typical way to understand um, ourselves when we're in conflict. So we have our Paleolithic emotions that haven't evolved for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, we still are human nature we have our basic human emotions Um, so we can think of ourselves as this iceberg and when we're in a fight or when we're in conflict with something someone all we ever do is show our position so we show that very ice at the top of the iceberg Um, and then what's hidden underneath is all of our interests emotions values and needs so this is where we can meet on like a human level no matter kind of where you are culturally or anything else it's what you can do if you sit down and dialogue and where you can get to that mutual understanding and collaboration is when you get to the bottom of the iceberg. Um, so when you can meet people's needs and you can actually get them to fight, move beyond their position that they're showing to understand what are their ontological um, basic human needs that aren't being met. Or you can recognize their values, what are their cultural and acquired changeable values um, that need to be recognized, and what are their interests. What kind of interests do they have that are made up of their feelings, beliefs, values, and experiences? Um, are they substantive? Like, they, do they focus on, some people need their interests, so like, is it following the rules? Are they psychological? Do we need to be feel respected at this point of time? Or do they need to be procedural? Are they fair? So if we can target these things that are underneath the iceberg, we can start to break down the general basis of conflicts, and then we can apply this using greater systems of peacebuilding. So if you think kind of of this orange, if we are all fighting over this orange and say, all five of us over here, we're all like, I want the orange, and we're pushing each other. No, you give me the orange, I need that orange. It's my orange. Go over there, I want that orange. If we sat down and actually, like, discussed why do we need the orange, we could find out that James needs the seeds to grow an orange tree in his backyard. Ross needs the orange to make juice. I need the rind to bake a cake. And then we can all have the orange if we sit, sit down and figure out, like, what are our needs and interests behind actually having the orange. So this is kind of the indi- individual component that can be based, that spreads out from, like, individual mediation. And then this is just kind of, like, the spectrum of very basic mediation to peace building. So, like, at the top is this kind of interest base where we're, it's, like, informal dialogue in mediation and it goes down towards the bottom where it's like rights-based is where we usually meet the law and we go to court and it's very justice-oriented and then at the bow- bottom is power-based negotiation where it's usually uh, fighting, actual fighting for it or arbitration where it's just those power balances. So the more we move towards interest-based negotiation and peacebuilding is where we can get more towards empowerment and recognition through sitting down and understanding one another's needs. Um, which is where we can work into this little gray area here um, that exists a lot of the time when even let's say you are following the law and then people's needs still aren't being met. So um, so if you want to look what it looks like on kind of a societal level, there's this general like track one, track two, track three, where you want to be able to lift up all the voices in each of the tracks to interact with one another, so this is kind of like what an overall peace process can look like. Um, And at the very top, you need to engage with the political and military groups. Um, In the middle, you want to work with leadership, respected sectors, religion, academics, problem solving. And then at the bottom, you want to make sure it's empowered from the grassroots up, so you're included in the local leaders, um, grassroots leadership. And then you're going to facilitate dialogues in between all of those and start to build like a web of relationships so it's not just this top-down or bottom-up approach, even though that pyramid would state otherwise. Um, so I guess I'll just conclude really quickly um, what we can do in situations. These are kind of just different tools of mediation and peace peacebuilding. Um, so basically the active, like, output from any sort of thing is that you want empowerment and recognition. So you don't want just people to feel like you are using them as a means to an end. You're really just there to listen um, and make them feel heard, and then hopefully work a resolution with someone else. Um, So you can do that in a number of ways, and if you're in conflict or you're having a problem, you can use these different ways. So, like, sharing circles, I know, are used in research. That's, like, an indigenous form of reconciliation and consensus building, so you can always use circles as a tool, but we could do three days on circles, so I just put it there as a thing. Um, active listening, I just, I'll just i list off some ways you can active listen, so if someone's yelling at you or you find yourself, like, when you're doing research or you're in conflict with someone in a department, you can use active listening, which is really simple. Um, you just use open-ended questions. You try to rephrase what the other person is saying to you. Um, you try to encourage them by asking them to elaborate or clarify more. You restate what you've heard, and then you kind of reflect their feeling back. I can hear that you're saying blah, blah. you're saying you're angry. Um, do you want to explain to me more why, so I can understand? Understand, and then you want to reflect back their values that they're giving you. So, I hear you were feeling disrespected when A said B to you. Tell me more about it. So, like there's simple ways you can like engage in conversation that change how you interact with people from another country, your other department, other ways, and then it kind of just can escalate and then help to build relationships as well. Um, and then it can also help you to learn different cultural protocols. Um, yeah, so I was gonna go into different ways in which we've like used these abroad, but I don't think we have enough time. Um, yeah, and so basically, I'm trying. What my main question in the end was trying to look at how we can look at relationship building with one another, and there's been all of the, this work done. But then looking towards like Indigenous pe- pedagogies and relationality to how we can expand restoring our relationships to one another too with the land as well. Cool. Oh, I did there. Thank you so much. All
0: right, so good. for a small group. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. simulate the conversation from there. Uh, perhaps you three have questions for each other first. <coughs> yeah. So I'm going to put that. Da, da, da. So pretty, uh, a pretty wide range of ideas um, that we all have, uh, from chemistry to. Chemistry to taxation, religion, <laughs> to uh, thinking about how we can better listen to each other through indigenous ways of knowing and conflict resolution. So, how are these, okay, this is our mission here is to try and think, like, how are these related to one another? What are the commonalities here? Um, and perhaps you three can start us off with some of the consideration you have of each other's work and how it relates to your own.
3: I'll go first. (laughs) So I think the idea was and I didn't really get to mine was like how if you're abroad, like how you are engaging with a community in a different like context. Mine was more trying to think of like how we engage with one another. But like thinking how you are in a different place and kind of rules of engagement for that or like and why Mm -hmm. you're engaging in the first place, if that makes sense.
0: I I really liked – I think there was something you said, and I think maybe we can all – are you guys okay with us all this topic? That's
1: amazing.
0: Yeah, not much time. Um, Something you said that I think cut to both of yours in, in one way was when you were speaking about violence. So I think it's really interesting to say that yes, African universities are struggling a lot with access to resources. Um, So I'm from South Africa. I've seen it and arguably many universities in South Africa are the best in the continent, right? And even then I'm comparing those resources to resources here. Um, You're speaking about religion and, uh, and taxation and difficulties with the state mobilizing people to give them money or trusting each other, right? And if you've got violence in any place, so Ghana Ghana is not a, there's not much, well, increasingly so in the north, right?
2: Not, not in the north? So. Not,
0: not, not currently, no. Not currently. Maybe your neighbors. Nigeria. Yeah. Every, every coast. Of the anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, the point was, what? A, how does violence or conflict resolution help in your two different ways? Because religion can create a certain amounts of conflict, And. And, and how does violence, or conflict resolution, what is the relation to that to chemistry or given that it's a higher education?
2: So um, with what, what, I was, what I was saying is um, I'm not trying to answer your question, <laughs> though I know you're posing a question about violence and conflict. Of course religion can, if not to use wisely, can evoke uh, violence and conflict. Uh-huh. But uh, the conflict for me, it's in terms of the means to development um, and the, the ways people envision what development is, not necessarily conflict in terms of uh, civil war and all of that. I think the conflict now is in terms of uh, uh, envisioning what it means for a country to develop, what it means for a country to uh, you know, emerge at a position where it can say that it has progressed, right? So with um, Ross, I think Ross was talking more about um, chemistry and how chemistry can be mobilized uh, from the continent and the diaspora. Yeah. And I'm talking about, in, I'm talking more in terms of religion, um, in terms of um, the operations of religious organisations in, in in the continent and also in diaspora as well. And um, I think Martinez was talking about uh, uh, you know conflict as in personal and societal. And so, I think for conflict and violence, if I will answer your question, the conflict for me is not necessarily in terms of uh, community or society or civil war or all of that. It's conflict in terms of ideas, right? Okay. Yeah. So, for example, um, and that, that brings it, that, that, that zooms into the conversation about dimensions of engagement, right? Mm-hmm. So, how, how, how do you define that a country should develop? What are the paths? that are established for a country to kind of, I don't know if it's a linear path for them to reach that stage of development in terms of education. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's where I think the conflict might be in, right, uh, so if you're engaging people, um, how do you reconcile their, 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 their differences in that way, right? Yeah, so. Um,
3: and I think I mine was focused more on the conflict, but I think the point of what I was trying to say is how, it should all go back to sitting down and listening to one another and so, and understanding and like having those hard conversations. It was like the these and I was trying to show kind of like the spectrum of from as individuals if we're reconciling ideas or not understanding each other's ideas, we need to like sit down and understand the other person's mm-hmm. perspective and make that time to sit and have those conversations in that in our our own like basic shared humanity. And the, I was trying to more, I wanted to say the beauty and all of that, but instead it came with like violence no, and
0: My intention wasn't to, to derail it. Was <coughs> it was an interesting note on, on the idea of violence. And I know violence was a small part of your presentation, mm-hmm. but I think it's a really critical idea of, of how much can be meted Like what, what is that, guys? Um, there's a social who has like Maslow, Maslow? Yeah, yeah. Maslow's got the... Like the, the hierarchy pyramid. of needs, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and if you don't have your basic needs met, which mm-hmm. I think is what kind of you were saying, then, then trying to get research and development and chemistry off the ground becomes... Almost really, impossible. ...really difficult because people will say, well, chemistry is not important. People are dying by guns. Yeah. But if I take what some of what you, both of you were, were saying, all three of you, is... Is Even at lower tier, you, you still have to invest in ideas, good, interesting ideas to get people inspired beyond what could be the most terrible of situations. So I know that wasn't your, your mm. goal. I was just trying to think of a, a way in which this conversation, uh, it's really, it's an interesting idea, this conflict
4: of, of ideas. Um. I think it's, um, all of your um, presentations were very interesting to me because I kind of try to really fit what you're proposing into how, whatever I how I explain the world, and I think the topic can be discussed without really talking about col- colonialism. And um, if I if I look at conflict resolution and conflict theory, I think it's it's an awesome concept um, to also, you know, um, help to prove. Situations where conflicts happening. But it like with the tools you suggested, that only works with people who actually are on the same who kind of uh, stand on the same platform on eye level. If if there's an economic um, imbalance, which which is the colonial uh, history, that a lot of country with the, the global north and the global south. And the relationship is still the same. It just has a different, different name. Um, the The reasons for the cause of a conflict um, could, you, you said, in, lies in injustice. But then, looking closer, what that actually means. So, if there is, if there is a military leader who implements laws and um, holds up. A society that, let's say, for example, I'm just making something up here, um, favors uh, foreign investors coming into the country, um, <coughs> selling out land to have resource extracted that also goes outside of the country. So there is a kind of a material structure that also needs to be addressed and that cannot just be, you know, who listens to whom, right? So and who are the, the ones who are dispossessed? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about dispossession, not about poverty, because everyone on on Earth who is poor has been dispossessed. There is all the countries we're talking about are r- so rich in natural resources and in knowledge and everything. I actually also don't talk about development. I um, I think it's rather that the global north is overdeveloped, if you want to talk about so, um, so the develop that this for me, it's rather about the, how the distribution of wealth happens, and 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 working within, you know, understanding the concept of colonialism, capitalism, and patriarchy, how that worldwide, you know, how that exists, um, is for me a, a very important to address. Can I just say something? Yeah. I know.
1: I mean, I was just going to say, like, I think that's why, so some of what I'm proposing, I'm actually trying to write this up as a paper as well, is to try and encourage people in the global north, so to speak, to invest more of their time, because that's in the sense, if you give up some of your time to mentor people, to get involved in some of these initiatives, so for example, when I give up my time edit, editing, I don't get paid for editing, for being an editor of that journal, that's voluntary work. I am... I'm spending time doing that that could have been used publishing a paper here, my own work, making my you know developing my own career, and I'm kind of sacrificing that because I realize. I mean, I've been convicted, and I know that the assistance I provide will one day have fruits, will bear fruit in um, in another continent. So there's a. Do you know what I mean? Um, But isn't
0: there a lot of worry of like critique of paternalism, um, which is, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing. Because I, I agree yeah, yeah, that yeah. You, should, you should help where help is needed. Uh, but sometimes who gets to define the help? And who gets to define, which I think speaks a bit too, uh, El- Elvira, mm-hmm. um, um, who gets to define the parameters of scholarship, right? So like even working within a journal, the fact that that journal is open access is already... A, it's different, right? So yes. that's already a complicated step. But we only seem to value academia in particular ways as has been defined according to, to tradition,
1: western tra- tradition, western tradition. Western tradition. traditional
0: like, yeah. ways of knowing.
1: Yeah.
0: Um so then the challenge then becomes how how or do we want to know differently? Like is this model of teaching people elsewhere what is the traditional way the correct way? or is it
1: trying to make people fit within
0: a system that's potentially broken? Mm. Yeah, although, I mean... I'm not, like, I'm not
1: a personal attack on No, of course not. A... It's great. I mean, and I've thought about this as well, of course. But I think science is science at the end of the day, whether you're in Ghana or Canada. And the way that science is communicated globally is universal. I did an experiment. These are my results. I don't think there's... Much to be debated about that, and if I'm mentoring someone who doesn't have that ability to communicate that effectively, um, I think that's I think that's a good thing. And the fact that AuthorAid has so many participants who are receiving mentoring and actually giving mentoring as well—it's mainly remember what I said—it's Africans in the diaspora. I'm sure, I'm white. There's lots of black people in the diaspora who are mentoring people and as Indians. That aid is for the whole world. It's not just for Africa. Um, but it's mainly people in the diaspora who are attracted to that because they know the situation. Um, so from a chemistry perspective, like I've pushed back a little bit against that, what you're talking about, because science is science. Chemistry is chemistry. In terms of the teaching and the passing of information, the way that that's done, I think there's ways to decolonize that. But at the end of the day, if we have a science experiment, science experiment here, I can't see how it can be done differently or communicated differently. But I could be wrong.
2: I think I'm not, I'm not a scientist in the hard of pure science perspective. But yep. in terms of social sciences, yes. there's never any universal. It's always contextual. Okay. So whatever research you produce in the social sciences and in humanities, of course the, the, the methodologies are of course universal but we it's it's gonna be difficult for example to pick um, any you know area and, trans- and and then just fix it anywhere without translating it within the context. I think for chemistry maybe you, you 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 are the expert so you can be able to translate, you know, what is a good research in terms of chemistry uh, Outlines, what's um, a good experiment, you know, and all of that. But the social sciences, it's it's more about the methodologies you're using and then the the, the kind of sources you're using. Like, those structures, of course, I don't think it's so much Western. Like, I mean, it's, in a way, it's, 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 uh, it's a protocol you need to follow, right? Yeah. Yeah. But at the end of the day, for example, if you're producing a research about... Um, there was one, there was one example I saw on Twitter a few days ago. Someone wrote an article in a very high-rated journal on Kenya or something like that, and never cited any scholar who had published any, any, that same topic in Canada. And it was a local, like it was an indigenous topic, and there had been so many scholars who had written on that topic,
0: yeah. oh. you
2: know, and. The person don't even cite just one. Yeah. <laughs> and I, <but> this <laughs> speaks a bit to what you're okay, saying. Okay. So in that case, of course, you have produced a good work. Yeah, you know, yeah. you've done all of that. But would you call that academic? <laughs> I don't know how would you, you rate that. You know. So that those are the contentions. Yeah. yeah. Those are the issues. So for, and that's where a lot of like scholars working on Africa and but they always have to engage. You know, Western observers that okay. Yes, this is what you're finding, but this is how you need to contextualize it. Yeah, you
4: know. Yeah, and uh, also in, in the thoughts around your presentation have been that um, the, the, that chemistry and also this kind of exchange, education and research, always kind of lives within the market. So whatever is exported and what is researched on is usually very much influenced by how big transnational corporations fund universities or, or especially topics that you know whatever is in their interest in order to accumulate then profit. And, and so that would be something that I find would be interesting in your case to look a little bit more close. What are you actually talking so, about at the universities? And uh, then there was some something else um, that I know was the that, you know, that, um, that oh yeah, that you talked about the water and how water can be purified through a through a chemical I don't know yeah. component. Without I'm, and and I, I my first thought was well I want to like know why is the water contaminated in the first place and from what I know from my research is that. Industrial agriculture, industrial industrial and urban development are one of the most um, prevalent, uh, let's say, sources for um, environmental degradation and also the water contamination. And that has also a lot to do with industrial production. You know, like again, we were here with transnational corporations. Maybe they produce herbicides, and they, and those herbicides are sprayed like wildly on. on monocultures that have been introduced within the last 30 years, that actually degrades water. So is that also looked at, you know, all these things that come in here? And then we get another technical solution for something that has been caused by, you know, sure, but yes.
3: I mean, in the first place. Oh, sorry the first place. <laughs> well, and I'll say that, and then I just wanted to say something before put said. but I feel like what kind of got lost in your presentation that I think was understood that speaks maybe to what you're saying, too, is how maybe trying to grow scientists from an African perspective of what it means to... Like fix these industrial problems, not just have like a water chemical component, but have these homegrown solutions that are mixed with local knowledge. That is its own version of whatever African science is. But right now, it doesn't have the capabilities to be African science because there's not enough resources to support whatever it could be that may disrupt Western science and be its own kind of new science. That is like, you know, so it's not just like, like I think
1: like. Well, that's beautifully said, be that's
3: If that makes sense. That's kind of what I understood you trying, but it just came off a little bit more like, oh, we need to move Western science to Africa. But I think what you meant to say more is, like, there's not even the capability for the science to grow and evolve how that's, it could that's what be I was to yeah. from a more African sense. Does and that make Like, African, and then
0: you know this firsthand, African social sciences, and I think this speaks to something you said in your presentation, as well as with... with James you just said no, is there is a rich rich history of, of African academia like dating back hundreds of years mm-hmm. African philosophers um, African scientists African experiments observations but until and like you you rightly said when you showed those two journal articles the different citations is the structure yeah. of whose words matter mm-hmm. is different right so if if Kenyans doing the science are not valued as much as Canadians doing exactly the same science, so for all intents and purposes, if the experiment is the same in Canada and Kenya, but the Kenyan, the value of the Kenyan scientist's knowledge is not valued in a marketplace or in a social way as the Canadian scientist, then I mean this starts to speak to some of the, the conflicts, and um, some of the, the, the tensions because until we address, and you see the same things in journalism, right? 300, was 300 Nigerian girls get get kidnapped. That's enough to make it to the news. One British girl gets kidnapped, and it's in the news for ten years, right? It's it's we value different people's lives differently, and I think we value their knowledge differently. Mm.
3: And I think this is where I got lost in my presentation to kind of explain, like going back to your point and it's these like peace building processes that are the exchange in relationships that makes you understand the difference in value from a western perspective Mm -hmm. so like peace building in itself is actually very anti-colonial because it's understanding it's about building the bridges so you could go and understand how the African science is of a different is of the same value or greater value but you can't understand that until you've like had that conversation or put yourself in a place to understand that but that's just like one example and where it's just like the building of relationships is taking the time when there's a conflict or something happens it's like understanding all of the systems and structures that are in place that have put someone in a place to do violence like understanding terrorists or gangsters because not because they're gangsters or terrorists but putting them putting someone who's at the top to listen to that person's story and understand that they're conducting this violence because they don't have any other choice that is a product of this system of corruption and cycle of violence that's keeping them there so it's like creating structures that rebalance the power so you can understand this person's position and start to value their position And, like, especially in the Haitian context, it's, like, the rich live in this one little bubble of 1%, and then they never, like, go down to see what's happening in Port-au-Prince, where the poorest person is living. They're like, oh, the richest Haitians, like, we don't have poverty in Haiti. Like, that doesn't exist here, which is, like, insane to say. So it's, like, about lifting up and changing that colonial mentality of being, like, the hierarchy sitting up here and never understanding the voice or the value of someone else not created in this economic system or like Mm -hmm. this system of colonialism so it's about like restructuring that and at least if you can build a link so that these two people understand and value each other on the same way then that hopefully starts to trickle and starts to build this web of relationships that starts to deconstruct that colonialist structure that like maintains this inequality
4: and if that makes sense yeah
3: and I, and I was just trying to show that it can be—I'm like, so, like, trying to explain so much, I explain nothing at all. But I was just trying to say that it can. it's used a lot with, like, in Ireland, how now the IRA are now Sinn Féin, and they're the biggest political party. So they were considered terrorists, but really the British Army was a colonial power that had moved in and was settler-colonizing Northern Ireland, right? So they were seen as terrorists when they were fighting the colonial powers, but now that we have a pro- peace process and we're understanding that they were fighting the settler colonialism, now they're respected in a high regard as a political party. So it's like shifting, like looking, leaning into those perspectives and creating space. So we start to like value what people are doing in a different way. Yeah.
4: If I may um, add to that, I'm someone who is interested in development or in local economies, and that would also be true for the global north, so that uh, uh, there's research out there by researchers like Maria Nies and Bedevonica Bento-Thompson who are all Europeans who lived outside of Europe for a long time, um, who also mentioned that the destruction of local economies all over the world through colonialism and also the export of you know, capital relationships also which also are an expression of patriarchy by the way um, <coughs> is actually a major issue in terms of uh, empowering empowerment of people well, are different. it's it's different from country to country but there is also kind of a pattern so there are the there are societies that are already they have existed there are indigenous societies for thousands of years and they have they thro- thrived, you know, and lived well. And interestingly, they were very often not patriarchal societies. They were actually not really uh, organized. And they were egalitarian, and they were subsistent. Um, and and this is still ongoing, like the destruction of those societies. They still exist, and they are being distro- destroyed. So I'm, I'm kind of someone who is more interested in, um, kind of, how can we kind of stop the destruction process and also develop those local uh, economies back even here um, in order to uh, create a more peaceful society. I wonder if I can hand it over to
0: James quickly. Uh, We're actually at 3 o'clock now, so just a last word. Um, Maybe in response to what you're saying, do you think religion then offers a way, a potential way in which to, not religion, but the way in which religion organizes its ability to bring in money? to try and keep these kinds of local (coughs) ways of knowing and doing alive, or resistant to bigger
2: powers? It depends. (laughs) That's a big question. It depends, because um, I think you've been in our previous uh, seminar before. It depends on how the individual kind of um, um, wants to, to apply you know, their faith or their you know, belief systems, you know, either positively. Or, I mean, in, in a more, uh, you know, in a way that it's, it's, it can be both functional and dysfunctional, okay? So um, I wouldn't say, hey, this is the roller coaster ride, right? you know, just follow it, and then it's gonna be okay. Right. You know, it's more about the context and how, you know, the, the community or the, uh, the traditions that people may not head to can be functional and dysfunctional. Yeah, so in terms of generation of money, like, my main point is that like, it's, 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 it's amazing for me you know, when I see how uh, right now you have half a billion people who are um, adhering to the spin post-archives traditions and, and it's very popular in the non-Western world. Mm-hmm. And uh, now they are even coming in to, 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 to the West, establishing churches here as well, and claiming that they want to have churches as many as Starbucks coffee shops around. So, like, my, 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 my argument is, like, this thing has actually been, it has been discussed already, you know, as to how um, religion, you know, to a large extent will, de- will determine Africa's development in the next century. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a debate that is already ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, so my point is, like, there needs to be ways within which, you know, development policymakers and development practitioners can pay attention to that. Look at how functional this functional can be. Um, in terms of education, for example, like in Ghana, uh, we used to have just one public university. Mm-hmm. Now we have about fifteen other universities that were all established by because of charismatic churches. Wow. Yeah. In, in Nigeria as well. Is that you know, is that all local? Yeah, all locally. Local, yeah, all locally built, and now they already have a lot of affiliations with the Islamic schools as well. You know, like for example, you can study in those, you know, church-initiated universities and be going for, uh, it, going for summer abroad, let's say in Harvard or at Yale, because those people there are also coming in to study African cultures and bands and music. You know, so the point I'm saying here is, like, people have realized that government for a long time has failed regarding their promises of development mm-hmm. and that turned into these um, alternative ways in terms of religion. So that's where, you know, attention needs to be placed now into how we can, you know, structure this. Who's
0: structure things, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's,
2: that's, 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 that's what I can say. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting.
0: Um, and it's three, but it's five minutes past. Um, so we're going to go grab some coffee. I hope you're all staying around for the workshops. There's really good workshops coming. Please stay around. <laughs> People ate lunch and they're like, okay, bye. Um, But thank you so much. I'm sorry we got off to a bit of a rocky start, but this was a really good conversation, and I hope to see you in the bookshops as well. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yes, I did. That's it for this panel discussion. We hope that you'll listen to another, or better yet, join us at the next Beyond Boundaries conference.